All right, well, we are in uh, 1 Timothy chapter 3. We're going to look at verse uh, thir- uh, 14 through 16. So just a couple of verses, just a few, actually. Um, right here at the tail end of chapter 3, this is basically the halfway point in the letter. Um, it's not the halfway point in the whole series because we're doing 2 Timothy 2 here kind of together. But um, in 1 Timothy, this is the halfway point, And it's interesting because Paul seemed to be getting on a roll, like talking about all the things that the church needs. Um, he wrote this letter to help Timothy get the church in Ephesus back to Jesus, right? They had veered away from the pure message of the gospel. And, uh, and as a result, we're just kind of a, a big mess. And he, he writes this letter to help them establish the need for right doctrine, the right beliefs. Um, he also talks about dependence on God and humility and uh, the, the proper leaders for the church and uh, all those things that we talked about over the last couple of months. But now it's like middle of the letter. You're expecting Paul to just keep rolling right through and he stops. Uh, he basically takes this little detour uh, to take us essentially back to the beginning. I don't know if this was an intentional thing on his part or, or if it just happened to be right here in the middle of the letter. But he, he just like takes us back to the beginning and he starts to remind us again of what is central and what is foundational. Um, and, and we can read it. Look at verse 14. He says this, um, I hope to come to you soon, but I am writing these things to you so that if I delay, you may know how one ought to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, so Paul's like, it, it feels very disjointed here because Paul was just rolling along and now he's like, well, actually, I'm going to tell you again why I wrote to you. And he says a couple things. He says, I hope that I can come to you soon. Uh, Paul is in Macedonia. He set that up already at the top of the letter. We see that he's, he's in Macedonia. Macedonia was a region. It wasn't really a, a city. Um, Thessalonica is over there, Berea. Um, and you had to cross the Aegean Sea to get back to Ephesus. So uh, it wasn't like, oh, he can just hop on a plane, right? It it's not, didn't work that way 2,000 years ago. And so he w- is hoping to come. He, he doesn't want to leave Timothy there all alone to do all this by himself. But uh, he knows that there's logistics. So he's going, I'm, I'm going to try and come. But if I can't get here soon, I'm writing this letter in advance of my visit so that you know what you need to lead this church into. But it feels a little bit clunky in some ways because Paul's already started telling Timothy what he needs to help establish the church to do. So it's, it's an interesting thing. Um, but, but I find it just really amazing that Paul stops right in the center of the letter to bring us back to the foundational things of what the church is. And he's going to talk about what the church believes. So the way we express this a lot here at Springbrook, the kind of the terms that I, that I use, and we've, we've stolen this from Ray Ortland, who's a pastor and author. Um, but we talk about gospel doctrine leading to gospel culture. So you'll hear me say those, those two phrases a lot, gospel doctrine, gospel culture. Gospel doctrine, of course, is what the church believes. Gospel culture is how the church lives out those realities on the ground in the church. And uh, so you can find uh, 
great churches that on, on paper believe all the right things and then you get to them and you're like, wow, something's disconnected here. What's the problem? It's because the culture doesn't actually in, be informed by the doctrine that they profess. So there's, there's something that we're trying really hard to, to see these two things together um, because it's, I think, the biblical model. It's what Paul and, and Peter and all the other apostles really tried to hone in on. Is that yes, the church needs to believe the right things, of course. That's absolutely central. Uh, but because we believe what God's word says, we should actually be uh, those things as well. And so that's where gospel culture comes in. And so here Paul's going to basically lay out these two things. He's not going to do it exactly in that same order. He, he, puts the, uh, he puts basically what the church is first and then what the church believes second. But that's okay because they can, they can be interchangeable to some degree. Um, but here's, here's what he says. In verse uh, 15... He gives us three metaphors or analogies, images uh, of what the church is. And it's an interesting thing that he talks about. Look at what he says. First he says, uh, of course he's wanting to write to them to tell them what they need to know, right? And what what they need to know is how to behave in the household of God, which is the church of the living God, a pillar and butchers of the truth. So right there we have three pictures of the church. He starts with the household of God. And and that's a family metaphor, right? That's a metaphor of family relationships. And and Paul talks about how we need to behave in God's household. That's what this letter's meant to help us to do, to learn how to behave in God's family uh, in the church. And so uh, that's that's clear, I think, if... Uh, you know, no matter how dysfunctional your family may have been or how wonderful it may have been, um, you had growing up certain expectations in your household. Right? You, had, you had house rules, whether they were stated or unstated. Maybe you didn't know about them until somebody blew up at you and screamed at you. But you, there were rules, right? There were expectations that you had to follow. My kids know what time they go to bed. Now, they don't always go to bed on time, right? But that theoretically, they know when they're supposed to be going to sleep. Uh, they know how to speak to me and their mom. And if they speak differently than they ought to, then there's consequences. And they, we've established all this through, throughout their life, right? And so that's just a couple of examples. There are, there are ways in which the family behaves within the household. And the, the bigger picture that Paul's painting here is that the church is the family of God. Uh, we, we actually see this analogy all throughout the scripture as God identifies himself to us as our father. Uh, he chooses that analogy of himself uh, to talk about our relationship with him because this whole thing is meant to be family. Right? So God is our father. Jesus is our brother. The Holy Spirit binds us all together as a family, and, um, and so Paul's writing this letter to talk about the household of God and what that looks like. But it's interesting that as you compare 1 Timothy to the letter he wrote to the Ephesians, the first letter to Ephesus, you could argue that, second, that 1 and 2 Timothy are the second and third letters to Ephesus because it's still going to the same church. And yes, it's addressed to a particular guy, but it's going to that church. And it's interesting how many overlapping concepts you see in Ephesians and 1 Timothy. And it's not an accident because Paul 
is trying to build on here in 1 Timothy what he's already established in Ephesians. So if you, we're going to do a little bit of bouncing between these two letters because I think Ephesians actually can fill in some of the gaps and, and show us a little bit more fully what we're talking about. And so if you go over to Ephesians chapter 1, we'll start here and just look at verse 4 and 5. Not the whole of 4, really just the very tail end. The last two words of 4 start a new sentence. And it says this, um, In love, he predestined us for adoption, adoption as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of his will. So, so here we have this clear uh, family connection, right? We see that in love, God the Father predestined. And now that's a big loaded theological word, kind of a scary word for some of us. It's not meant to be scary. It's meant to simply say that God's love for us was set upon us before there was anything that we did to earn it or prove that we should have it. That's an amazing thing. And it's a concept that we could obviously dive deeply into. But the fact that God initiated a relationship with us is an extremely comforting thing um, and, and also something that we should bank our lives on. But here, here we see it, right? In love, he predestined us for what? For adoption as sons, as sons and daughters, as children of his through Jesus Christ. So the only way to get into God's family is through Jesus, right? That's the only way. That's, it's, it's always about Jesus. It's always uh, getting access to the Father by Jesus and through Jesus. And so here we see this family thing being pulled out, that we are adopted into his family. Now, let's go over to chapter 2, because here we see it a little bit even more, more full, uh, 17 through 19. Here's what he says here. Um, He, let me find the verse. Here it is. It says, and he, he is Jesus, he's talking about. And Jesus came and preached peace to you who were far off and peace to those who were near. So let's step, stop for a second and think about what's he talking about? Uh, Who's far off? Who's near? What's he referring to? Uh, Well, one of the main themes of Ephesians it's actually one of the most theologically rich books in the New Testament, probably the, the second most after Romans. But what he's talking about is the unifying work of the gospel to bring Jews and Gentiles into Christ together. Okay, and so far off, those who are far off, he says, you who were far off. Why? Because he's speaking to a bunch of Gentiles in Ephesus, and he's saying, you guys weren't in God's covenant in the Old Testament times. You guys were far off, but Christ came and preached peace to you. And then he says to those who were near. So he preached peace to those who were of Israelite Jewish descent as well. And so here's here's what he's doing. He's bringing Gentiles and the Israelites together. And here's what he says in verse 18. He says, for through him, through Jesus, there's that key phrase again, right? Through Jesus, we both Jews and Gentiles have access to one spirit to the Father. We both have access in, excuse me, in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer strangers and aliens or foreigners, 
but you are fellow citizens with the saints. And here it is, and members of the household of God. So he uses that exact same phrase, household of God, in 1 Timothy, as well as in, in Ephesians. He's writing to the same church. He's, he's built this out already, which is why 1 Timothy is really kind of a quick flyover of a lot of these concepts. It's because so much of it's already been established and doesn't need to continue to be built out. But, but here's what he's saying. Don't miss the point. Right? He's saying that because of Jesus, we have access in the Spirit to the Father. So there's the Trinity at work in salvation. Right? Jesus is saving us, bringing us to the Father. The Spirit com- completes that work, bringing us there. And then the implication or the, the uh, ultimate application of this is that we are no longer strangers and aliens or foreigners. We're not outside. We are inside. We are members of the household of God. So the church is God's household. It is God's family. It is, it is a family. That is the overarching message of the New Testament. That as Christians, whether we're all a part of a, the same local church or not, and I don't think this is about a particular local church. I think this is about the, the global church. All of us under Jesus, we're family. And, um, and yes, that is expressed in a particular local church uh, wherever we happen to be and ho- however we can gather with those who are believers in the areas that we live. Right? We're meant to gather locally um, as, as a congregation. But ultimately, we're a part of God's family So that's the first analogy, the family metaphor. Secondly, look at the next phrase back in 1 Timothy. um, We're looking at verse 3 and 15. He says this, the second phrase is, which is the church of the living God. So here's the second descriptor or metaphor of of the church in this. The church of the living God. So let's, let's first talk about what does that word church mean? Right? The, I think we take it for granted. Sometimes we think of church as the building that we show up to. Um, I don't know that too many of us struggle with that. I think we understand this intuitively. But the church comes from the Greek word that, that's ekklesia. That's how you pronounce it in Greek. Ekklesia means an assembly, means a gathering. Okay, so... The church is a translation of the Greek word for gathering. That tells us something. That tells us something about what the church is. Um, It is a gathering, fundamentally. And I think we all understood this maybe more tangibly than than we ever have when we were all under the the COVID, you know, shelter at home stuff from a year and a half ago, and suddenly now church is weirdly on YouTube or Facebook or something, and um, it felt like this isn't the real thing. And it wasn't, in a sense. Right? It's not to say that it wasn't meaningful. I worked really hard, for those of you who were around at that time, like, to, to try to make something happen, right? It was horrible, though. We all can agree it was terrible. Uh, it wasn't what it was meant to be. And I think that this brought it into focus more than ever. Like, whoa, okay, yes, the church isn't a building, but a church is people gathered together. And, and if we're completely isolated from each other, there's something wrong. 
and, and I get it. Like, I'm not, I'm not making a comment about the shutdown or anything. I just, I understand there are circumstances that come up and whatever, but, but that is not like how it ought to be. This is an assembly. It's a gathering. And so Paul says that the church is the gathering of the living God, the living God. And this is actually, this phrase living God is actually taking us to an Old Testament metaphor uh, or an Old Testament image, perhaps is a better word. Um, It brings us back to Old Testament imagery of the tabernacle and the temple. Um, If you remember in the Old Testament, you had the the people of Israel in Exodus uh, be rescued out of Egypt and then they were gonna be given into their promised land but they rebelled. And so God said, well, you're going to spend 40 years in the desert wandering around in the wilderness. And in that period of time, God didn't abandon them. He didn't forsake them. He told them, here's what's going to happen. You're going to set up a tabernacle for me to dwell in. Uh, So wherever you camp, you're going to set up this tabernacle and that's where my presence will be. God was always and is always a living and active God in the lives of his people. And that was representative by the tabernacle and then later by the temple that was built by Solomon. You remember that as they got into the promised land, they spent a lot of years in conflict. Uh, The Canaanites and the Philistines and all these people that they're fighting with. uh, There wasn't a lot of peace. And then David comes in as king and David kind of had a really tumultuous uh, kingdom as well. But he brought it to a place of relative peace, handed it over to Solomon. Solomon just had a nice, peaceful reign. And God said to David and then to Solomon, um, this is how this is going to work. He, Solomon's going to build the temple for me. And, um, and the reason he didn't let David build the temple, though he wanted to, uh, was because he was a man who had shed too much blood and there was just too much conflict in his life. And so Solomon gets to build the temple. And the temple became kind of that permanent structure. Now that there's stability in their home, uh, they can have a permanent dwelling place where God, the living God, is among them. And that's all the picture. Now, here's the thing. Uh, In New Testament, we see that Jesus is actually the true fulfillment of that temple. We don't need a physical temple to come to God because Jesus is the fulfillment of that. The the temple was a shadow of of the fuller substance in Christ. Um, John in his gospel starts by saying uh, essentially that Jesus uh, was the word, the eternal word in heaven who was with God and is God. He became flesh and became a person and he dwelt among us. And that word dwelt comes from the word that could be translated tabernacle. And so it's kind of a, that's why they translate it dwelt because tabernacled is an awkward word. And it don't, I don't think it actually is a, a word. So, so they use dwelt, but that's, that's the picture that Jesus actually is the temple, the tabernacle uh, in which God's living presence is with his people. And we see that as we get back into Ephesians chapter two, look at, the very last verse, um, we're gonna we're gonna we're kind of sandwiching or going in between. We're skipping a couple verses here, but look at what he says at the end. He says, "In him, in Jesus, you also are being built together into a dwelling place for God by the Spirit." So the Holy Spirit now takes God's people and builds us together 
into a dwelling place for God. The church is the household of God. It is a gathering of God's people who gather with the living God. And then the third analogy is here. Look at 1 Timothy 3, uh, the end of verse 15. says, a pillar and buttress of the truth. So um, this is an architectural metaphor. He's, he's using the imagery of, of architecture, and he's probably thinking about the temples of the Greek world. Uh, in Ephesus, there was an enormous temple to Diana, who was one of their goddesses. And I don't know if this is exactly what Paul had in mind as he wrote this. Of course, he's, but he's trying to connect with his audience, and he's, he's trying to help them picture what the church is. And it's not a physical temple, like Diana's temple, but, but he uses this phrase, the pillars and buttress of the truth. Um, a buttress is a type of foundation that the pillar would rest on. And the pillars would then go up and all together would hold up the structure. And so here you're seeing this architectural picture of the church um, as a pillar and buttress of the truth. So, so as you get back to Ephesians, again, I told you we're flipping back and forth. Look at verse uh, 20 and 21. Here's how Paul articulates this. He says that this, the members of God's household, at the end of verse 19, are built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets. Christ himself being the cornerstone in whom the whole structure being joined together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. And so here again is the picture of the church that we are built upon the foundation of the truth of, as he says in 1 Timothy, uh, and the truth is found in the apostles and prophets. So whenever you read the New Testament and you hear the phrase apostles and prophets, read that as God's word. Okay, God's word, that's what we're talking about. We're not talking about the modern day giftedness of apostles or even the modern day spiritual gift of, of prophecy. Those, that's a totally different conversation. What Paul's talking about is not the spiritual gift of apostleship. He's not talking about the, the, the spiritual gift of prophetic gifting. He's talking about the word of God established through the prophets and the apostles that, that are ultimately the foundation of the church, which is why the church needs to open their Bibles and teach it and talk about it and build their, all of the authority of the church is built on the scriptures um, because that's where God's authority rests. It's in the word of God. It's not in uh, the church in and of itself. It's, it's found in God's word. And only as long as the church follows God's word are they on the right track. And so you have this reality that the We are fellow citizens. We're members of God's household and we're all built on this foundation of the apostles and prophets. But then look at this, Christ Jesus himself being the cornerstone. So the cornerstone of this structure was was the thing that made sure everything was cinched up and held together and wasn't going to go anywhere. So ultimately, Jesus is the cornerstone of the church. The apostles and prophets are the pillars of the church, or the, the, excuse me, the foundation of the pillars, and then the pillars represent lifting Jesus and his word high above us in honor, in worship, in adoration. That's how the church 
is meant to be pictured, that these pillars go upward, and so our hearts go upward to Christ. And that whole structure in verse 21 is being built together, joined together, growing into a holy temple in the Lord. And so there we have the the three kind of pictures, images of what the church is. And then in verse 17, or 16 rather, sorry, he, um, he pivots into what the church believes. So let's look at this. He says, great indeed, we confess. So confessing is basically affirming together as a, as a church what we believe, what God has established through the apostles and the prophets and what the word of God says. So great indeed, we confess, is the mystery of godliness. We're going to come back and touch on what the mystery of godliness is and what Paul means by that. But, but if we look at the second half of this verse, he basically starts to just lay out like a bunch of things that the church confesses, the church universally that every Christian church should believe to be a Christian church. He's giving us essentially the, the, a doctrinal statement or a, 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 an outline or a creed of what the church believes. Look at what he says. There's a number of things. We'll just go through them kind of quickly. It says he, this is Jesus he's talking about. He was manifested in the flesh, vindicated by the spirit, seen by the angels, proclaimed among the nations, believed on in the world, taken up in glory. So right there, he's just calling us back to what is foundational in our beliefs. This is not the nitpicky kind of Christian, like, okay, well, we can agree to disagree on this or that. Really, there's a trick-or-treater out there. Um, <laughs> well, we... <laughs> it's, all, it's all good. Uh, I figured the lights are on. They're going to come. Um, he, he's giving us the, the clear picture of what the church doesn't get to nitpick about, but really just fundamentally believes. So let's walk through them. Manifested in the flesh. What is that? Well, that's the confession of the incarnation and the sinless life of Christ. And I think the death of Christ uh, all kind of wrapped up in this, that Jesus was manifested, made known in the flesh. He really became a human being and he lived among us. He was born into our world. He died a real death. All of this is non-negotiable, right? This is Christianity uh, that Jesus Christ was manifested in the flesh. Secondly, vindicated by the Spirit. This is the confession that Jesus Christ was raised from the dead, that he was resurrected from the dead. And so vindicated by the Spirit is a reference to the resurrection, that Jesus died, but he rose on the third day. So, so these first two really just lay out basically what we celebrate at Christmas and Easter, these, these uh, kind of bookends of the Christian uh, church that we, we, we just celebrate that his birth on Christmas, we celebrate his resurrection on Easter. He was manifest in the flesh. He was vindicated by the Spirit. He was seen by the angels. I believe that this is a reference to his deity, that he was God, that, that the angels serve his purposes, 
that they exist for his glory, for his worship. He was seen by the angels, both in heaven and on earth. His birth was announced by the angels to the shepherds in Bethlehem. His resurrection was announced by the angels uh, at the tomb on Easter Sunday. Uh, Angels throughout his life did various times ministered uh, to him. But, But this is just a profession of his deity that he is fully God and that he's um, in heaven or that he was in heaven and was seen by the angels proclaimed among the nations this is a good one Uh, proclaimed among the nations is the confession that God's grace in Jesus is for everyone it's for all people it's for all the nations plural This is a radical idea in the first century because the church was started largely by Jewish believers, right? The apostles were all Jewish and they they were really, at least a lot of them were convinced that this was just for Israel. And in fact, at the the ascension, uh, Jesus is going into heaven and and they ask him, okay, Jesus, is this the time that you're now going to establish your kingdom in Israel? Like they're, their whole mindset was just their nation. And, and what, the, what the church believes and professes is that the grace of God is for all people, for all people everywhere. And, and this is not a tribal God. This is not a God who just does something for one particular group, but he does his grace. He gives his grace to all people. And that, that really is a, a massive uh, message. Um, and we're going to get back to that in just a little bit. But look at the last line here. Uh, oh, no, two more lines. Believed on in the world. Believed on in the world is the confession that salvation is in Jesus alone. And that's our message. That you have to believe to be saved. You have to, you're, you're given grace, but you have to trust, right? And so, that proclaimed among the nations and believed on in the world is really two sides of the same coin. Salvation is for all people, but for all people who believe in Christ alone, by grace alone, through faith alone. And then the last one here is this, taken up in glory. This is the confession of the ascension, that Jesus is no longer here on earth, but he's in heaven currently at the right hand of the Father. But what this practically means for us is that there is an ongoing ministry of Jesus in our lives, that he is actually accessible and that we can boldly approach the throne of grace with confidence uh, to, to find help in time of need. Why? Because Jesus is alive. He's, on, he's in heaven. He's actually working and ruling and reigning in this whole thing. And we get to just go to him at any time we need to and all the times that we long to and should be going to him at all times, right, ultimately. But this taken up in glory is the affirmation of the church to say, yes, Jesus is in glory right now and he will return. There's an implication in this of his return as well. Although, interestingly, Paul doesn't lay out an exact line about his return, although we all believe that and should believe that. It's thoroughly biblical. So, uh, so there it is. Uh, that's kind of the, the, the church's doctrine in a nutshell. So we see the church is God's family gathered together uh, with the living God. 
uh, upholding Jesus high. And this is what we believe and confess. But I want to go back to this idea of where Paul starts in verse 16 with the mystery of godliness. That's an interesting phrase. What is he talking about when he uses this word mystery? Flip back to Ephesians and go to chapter 3. This is where we're going to wrap it up. But Ephesians 3, 1 to 13. We're going to fly through most of this. We're not going to spend tons of time talking about every last bit. But let's look at what he says. Paul says, For this reason I, Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus on behalf of you Gentiles, assuming that you have heard of the stewardship of God's grace that was given to me for you. Verse 3, How the mystery was made known to me by revelation. So there's that word again. It's a very unusual word. It's not said hardly anywhere else but here in 1 Timothy. As I have written briefly, when you read this, you can perceive my insight into the mystery of Christ, which was not made known to the sons of men in other generations, as it has now been revealed to his holy apostles and the prophets by the Spirit. Okay, so... What Paul's talking about when he uses the word mystery is he's talking about something that was not understood prior to the apostolic era, but is now understood because Christ has revealed it fully to his apostles. So what is the mystery that people didn't understand that wasn't out there in the open for everyone to see at first, but now we can clearly see it? Verse six, this mystery is... All right, great. Paul's going to just tell us what the mystery is. That the Gentiles are fellow heirs, members of the same body, and partakers of the promise in Christ Jesus through the gospel. I, that's, I don't know, that's pretty wild, actually. What Paul's saying is, is this is the mystery that has now been made known that anyone can get in on this thing called the gospel. That is a radical thing in Paul's world in the first century. If, if you remember from the book of Acts, um, the first controversy that the church had to deal with uh, was this issue. Uh, are the Gentiles in? If they don't become Jews... Or do they have to become Jews to be in? And, and there, was a big, there was a big deal about this. The, the, uh, the Apostle Paul went to Jerusalem, to the, to the church, to where the elders of the church were primarily gathered at that point in time. And he was telling them about the, the Gentiles and how they're coming to Christ. And, and this made people... Uh, they, they made the church kind of curious, like, wait a minute, okay, here's all these people. They're not following the Jewish regulations. They're not following our dietary rules. They're not doing the things we're supposed to be doing. Can they really be saved if they're not doing all these things? And Paul didn't really speak into it too much, but there, the, the elders of the church at that time followed the Holy Spirit's leading and guiding, and they said, yes, the Gentiles can be full members into Christ even without having all the Jewish stuff about them. So we see this, right? We see this is actually largely the point of the whole Bible 
is that God is saving all people. Not, all, not everyone's going to be saved, right? But he's saving all kinds of people from all places, from every nation, from every tribe, from every language. He is at work in this. And uh, he has been preparing us for this forever, right? Isaiah prophesied about how the nations are going to come uh, to Jesus ultimately, although he didn't know his name and didn't have all the details. There was some mystery about this, but then we see the fulfillment of it, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs. It means we get, we get to inherit everything else uh, that the Jewish people get to inherit, the, that trust in Jesus, right? Members of the same body. So there's not two groups of people. There's one group of people that are in Christ. Partakers of the promise of Christ through the gospel. This is the whole thing. Like we see it uh, happening in uh, the book of Acts as well, where, where you may remember the story where Peter receives this vision of the sheet that comes down. And then uh, he's like in this trance, but, but then God tells him, uh, hey, you need to go kill those unclean animals and eat them. He says, hey, there's a pig over there. Go kill it. Go eat it, right? You remember that story? And Peter like resisted, resisted. He's like, no, no, no. I've never, never eaten any of that. I'm not going to do it. And Jesus says to him, Peter, you're going to kill and you're going to eat that dang pig. You're going to do it. And he does it. And I'm sure he was ecstatic once he tasted it. But, but it wasn't like, but he was really, really upset about it at first because this was so pivotal. Their dietary laws, all the things. So, so bacon and all the things, right? This was, a, this was prohibitive for, for the people in, in the Old Testament and then ultimately in the early part of the church. And what the Bible tells us is that, that all of that has been fulfilled in Christ and everything is declared clean because Christ perfectly fulfilled the law. So now we're free to, to eat and do all the things. And that is really what Paul is saying is the mystery, uh, is the, that the Gentiles are fully in. And that's great news for us, because we're mostly, I would guess, Gentiles in this room. Um, and that's, so this is great news. Okay, let's keep going though quickly here. Verse seven, of this gospel... I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given to me um, uh, by the working of his power. To me, though I am the very least of all the saints, that, that's something he talked about in the first part of 1 Timothy 2, being the least of all the saints. This grace was given, what was the grace? To preach to the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to bring to light for everyone what is the plan of the mystery hidden for ages in God who created all things. So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. This was according to the eternal purpose that he realized in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through our faith in him. So, so here's where this is all taking us. Right? This is the, the reality of the gospel, what the church is as the household of God leads to how we have a direct connection and access to Jesus himself. This is what he's saying, right? In verse 12, he's saying, in Jesus, we have boldness and access 
with confidence through our faith in him. So that, that is where all of this is meant to take us, into a real relationship with the real and living God who actually is alive and well for us, ministering to us by the Spirit and through the church. This is the whole thing. And then Paul finishes this with the one last verse here that we're going to look at. There's a, there's a lot more to this letter, but verse 13 kind of ties this all together with this word, so. Okay, so all the things I've said, what is, what is Paul trying to get this church to see? This is really cool. So I ask you not to lose heart over what I am suffering for you, which is your glory. Paul is doing something really amazing here. He's being a really good pastor to, his, to this church, in a sense. He's saying, listen, I know I'm in prison. I'm suffering. You're distraught because of that. But you guys have Jesus. So you don't need to lose heart. You don't need to throw in the towel. You don't need to give up. He's, he's essentially saying, I know that times are hard. I know your suffering is real, but we have an even more real and living Savior, even more real than our suffering here on earth. Because Paul says in 2 Corinthians that our suffering on earth is light and momentary affliction compared to the eternal weight of glory. And so in a sense, what we go through here is just a tiny blip on the radar. But what we have is Jesus who is actually living and reigning and and so Paul's just conclusion to this section is, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Stick with Jesus. Even though things are really hard, stick with Jesus. And I think that's a message that you and I need to hear too. Because we live in crazy times. And it's just going to keep getting crazier. It's just the facts. All of this is winding down at some point. I mean, who, who knows when, right? I'm not making any predictions, but it's all going to wind down and it's going to get wild. But here's the reality. No matter what we may suffer, no matter how hard things may get into our, in our lives day to day, we have a real living Savior who's risen and ascended and sitting at the right hand of God, who is, the Bible says, using his enemies as his footstool. We don't, need to, we don't need to lose heart. We don't need to throw in the towel. We can stick with Jesus. He's going to stick with us forever. So we can stick with him. And it's just an amazing thing to just be drawn back into the love and kindness of Jesus for us in the gospel. Because it's, it's in him that we can have this confidence and access and boldness in him. So I hope that no matter where you're at today, I hope you're encouraged in Jesus. No matter how bad your week may have been, no matter how bad your week ahead of you might be, you have Jesus. And that's a glorious thing. So let's pray. Father, thank you uh, that you have loved us so well and so fully in Christ. And we just pray that you, God, would, um, would minister to our hearts um, afresh today. I pray that you would use um, the word by your spirit to help us not to lose heart. And we pray, God, that, that you would get all the glory in the remainder of our service. And we pray 
all of this in Jesus' name. Amen.